This morning's verse is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, good morning. We'll do that Southern Baptist style. Good morning. (laughs) Every pastor, every sermon. Uh, Like John said, my name is Charles. My wife, Amanda, and I have been here at Peoria really since the start. We're super grateful. This is the same spiel I give every time, but I'll give it again. Super grateful to be a part of this church. If you don't know us or if we don't know you, please say hi, and I'll try to do the same. Uh, Let's pray. Father, um, if you're not here, then none of this matters. So, Spirit, would you please work in us and through us to see you clearly. We know we won't see you clearly until we meet you, but we ask that you would um, help us see you clearer than we've seen you before to grow us in you, God. I pray for those in this room that know you. Please, God, strengthen them to know you more. Reveal sin in our hearts. Remind us that you are the solution and the better option with all that. I pray for those in this room that don't know you, that wouldn't call themselves Christians um, or Christ followers, Lord. I pray that they would would know you or that you would save them. Um, Let us all see you well um, and know that you love us. Be glorified, God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 2. Last week, we started the book of Exodus, and we'll work really all the way up till the last weekend in November, uh, up till we start Advent leading up to Christmas. Uh, It's a big book, and we're going to bite into it with some big chunks. Pretty sure that was a bald eagle, but (laughs) that's all right. We, We love our kiddos. We love, love, love our kiddos. Just saying what you all are thinking. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. So we started Exodus last week. We at Redemption typically preach verse by verse or chapter by chapter through the Bible. And Exodus, uh, Sean started it last week, did an awesome job setting the table, really even went back into Genesis a little bit to help us understand what's going on. And Exodus is a narrative. And so with that, uh, it being a narrative and us preaching like chapter one last week, chapter two this week, it'll be chapters three and four next week. It creates some difficulties, right? Because the narrative is supposed to be read start to finish. Um, So because of that, it'll feel a little clunky here and there. So bear with us. But then also, I guess one way you could think of it would be like when you watch TV. So those of you who watch TV, uh, there's almost always that, you know, previously on, insert show name here, right? And you get you caught up. Oh, yeah, that happens. Kind of sets the table for the episode. And then sometimes you even get at the end on the next episode, it gives you a little teaser, and you're like, I can't wait till next week to see whatever is going to happen. So it's a bit of that with Exodus, and that Sean even had to go back into Genesis to help set us up. That'll tie into this chapter, and so forth and so on. So our hope is that in the coming weeks and months, we would look back on these first few weeks and go, oh yeah, God was working 
there then and see all these, these threads bind together. Another thing with Exodus is that whether you grew up in church or not, it's a lot like the story of Jonah that we went through a few months ago and that you probably at least have some sort of idea what it's about, right? Whether it's just through pop culture with movies or you grew up in church and you know about it. Um, that's awesome that we know about Exodus as we walk into it. But the negative to that is we kind of bring our own story to the table and maybe our own misconceptions to the table. And if you're like me, when you read it, you just kind of observe what happened. Maybe it becomes a little bit rote to you and loses its um, power. And so my encouragement to you would be as we read through Exodus that we wouldn't just observe a story, but that we would experience it. I don't know if that makes sense, but that we would immerse ourselves in it, that when we hear that the king of Egypt wants all the baby boys dead, that would, like, we'd feel the grief in that. Like, if you had, you have a baby boy, you'd understand the depth of that, that fear and that terror. So that we wouldn't just observe it, but we'd, we'd experience it and immerse ourselves in it. So we're just going to walk through the chapter today. We'll read, you know, a few verses at a time, stop, break it down, continue on, and see where it leads us. So let's dive in. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So we enter this story, which if you have your Bible, it says the birth of Moses, right? The, the, the publishers throw that on and kind of spoil it for us. But we don't see any names mentioned in these first few verses. It's all just this man married this woman. They had a baby. Oh, and there's a sister too. So this Levite man who uh, marries this Levite woman, they are of the house of Israel. They are part of this group of Israelites, which if we remember back to chapter 1, we know that, uh, and even into Genesis, God's people went to Egypt, about 70 of them in total, uh, because of famine and those kinds of things, and they thrived. So they, they were fruitful and multiplied. They grew into a great nation, which God had promised. So they're Israelites living in Egypt, thriving and flourishing. Then a Pharaoh comes on, a king comes on, and sees them as a threat, which is really ironic because the greatest nation in the world sees this kind of subculture as a threat. Basically saying if another army comes in, there's enough Israelites that if they jumped on with that other army, we'd be toast. So the Egyptian pharaoh's idea is we're just going to enslave them and make their lives terrible. Well, what happens is the Israelites get enslaved, but they continue multiplying. So even though their life is horrible, they continue, they're taking out their frustration somewhere, right? So they continue multiplying and growing like crazy. So God is continuing to carry out his covenant even in the midst of slavery. So the Pharaoh tells these midwives, hey, when a Hebrew boy is born, kill it. So I'll have Hebrew daughters. That's fine. They're fine to grow, but we're not going to have any Hebrew men in the coming generations. These midwives disobey, which is interesting because they feared God more than this tyrannical leader. And Israel continues to grow grow and multiply. And so the last verse of chapter 1 says this. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he enslaves the Israelites, hoping that'll kind of stop their growth and keep them down. It doesn't work. He then says, he then says, Israel, tells Israelite people, you need to kill your own. That doesn't work. They continue multiplying. And then he just tells everyone in this country. So he tells all the Egyptians, like if you see an Israelite or Hebrew boy, 
throw him in the Nile and drown him. So if you, again, let's experience this. If you are an Israelite uh, parent and you are pregnant, imagine how anxious you are. On top of just the normal anxiety that comes with all the unknowns of pregnancy. And then when you have, let's say you have a baby boy, you are living as essentially an occupied people under oppression and you're going to do everything you can to save that baby. Because if your neighbor who's an Egyptian who might be great with you is down with Pharaoh and his edict, all they need to know is you have the baby and that baby's gone and they're dead. So that's the scene that we're entering into. So this Levite man, a Levite woman, have a baby and it's a son, which is significant, right? Because it should be, now, now everything's bad. Now we're living in fear. It says that when she saw that he was a fine child, which is not a great translation to English. It literally, literally, the Hebrew just means that she wants to care for him, that she wants to take him in. So she has a baby, and she obviously, as a mother, wants to keep him and care for him. And so she, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, and we'll pause there, you might be like, why three months? And now she can't hide him anymore. The idea is that, like, if he's a newborn, he might cry here and there, but it probably won't be super loud. And he can probably be nursed and be okay. He's going to sleep a ton. He's going to eat a ton, and he might cry here and there, but she can, like, keep him hidden. After that point, it gets too difficult. So she, as a mom, wants to preserve him. She doesn't just give him up to the Egyptians or let him drown in the Nile. She creates, like, a basket made of papyrus for him, seals it up, and sets him in these reeds just off the shore, right? I know when I grew up, it was like, she's like, the Lord be with you, right? And they're like, down he goes. If, you, if you've ever even been in a small river or a creek, you know that there's a current, right? So he's... He's most likely not out in the river. He's probably by the reeds, by the shore. And it could have been just one afternoon this happened. It could have been over a series of months or weeks. We don't know. Um, if it was an extended period of time, she probably went out to check on him, nurse him, keep him alive, etc. Um, but this sister is keeping an eye on him. Classic older sister, right? So keeping an eye on him, making sure that he's okay, seeing what's going to happen. Now, quick little like theology nerd deal. The Hebrew word for basket here is the same word that Moses used when he writes Genesis for ark. And you know, like the story of the flood, that you know, Noah built this ark to save God's people. That's not random. That's not coincidental. Like Moses would use this word ark, that if you're a, you're a Jew hearing this and you know your story, you know that that probably means deliverance is coming, that this baby is set in this little mini ark, set in the river, something's going to happen. Back to the story. So sister's watching. Verse 5, it says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh hates the Jews, wants all the boys killed. She goes down to the river to bathe while her young women walked beside the river. So she's bathing in the river. Her young women are kind of keeping watch, hanging out. It says, She saw a basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw a child. And behold, the baby was crying, which I think is like an obvious and hilarious detail. Duh, this baby's crying. It's in a basket on a river. Um, She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now let's pause there. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt and has declared this edict that says any Hebrew boy that you see needs to be thrown into the Nile so that he'll drown. And the daughter of Pharaoh, who's probably one of many daughters, but still she's in his household. She goes to bathe in the river and sees this baby boy, recognizes that it is a Hebrew, and instead of flipping the basket over and letting him drown, has pity on him. In verse 7, the sister, right, it says, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so sister's keeping an eye out somewhere. She rolls into the scene and says, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, the mother, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So there's even like little, little redemption stories throughout this huge redemption story that sister jumps in. She's old enough to kind of know what's going on. And she says, hey, you just found a baby. You can't nurse because you're not the baby's mom. Can I go get you a nurse from the Hebrew women, somebody who can nurse him and raise him, which is pretty standard for uh, like royal families? Pharaoh's daughter says yes, and the sister goes and gets mom. So this little cool redemption piece of like, Moses' mother just set him on a riverbank hoping for survival. He gets found by Pharaoh's daughter, and it's over at that point, right? But she has pity on him, so he lives. And now she gets to raise her own son and nurse him and bring him up, probably for three to four years till he's weaned, um, which is a pretty cool little God thing. And then on top of that, and only a way that God can do, she also gets paid to do it. So now she has income as she raises her own son. It says in verse 10, when the child grew older, so probably like three or four, the mom, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So this uh, biological mother gets to care for her son for a few years to nurse him, to raise him. And then eventually, which is I'm sure horrible, has to give him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And then essentially Moses is adopted, adopted into Pharaoh's family. Uh, and she names him, which is pretty standard. Like, they probably called him something those first few years, but Pharaoh's mom names him Moses, and as you can see, uh, because I drew him out of the water, and there's usually a little note there, the Hebrew for Moses is drawn out. So he's drawn out of the water, and if you know the rest of the story of the Exodus, you know there's something to that. Something, a little cool side note, the name Moses, or at least what sounds like it, also is Egyptian for son. So Pharaoh's daughter, his adopted mom, now uh, gives him a name that works in both cultures, which is a pretty cool thing. Now, this is huge, right? The next verse just goes to when he's like 40. But we're going to pause because now he's adopted into Pharaoh's family as an Israelite. And J.K. Hoffmeyer says this. It says, Moses' upbringing in the royal court is passed over without comment. He's a young child in verse 10 and a grown man in verse 11. It's fair to assume that Moses was reared in the royal harem along with other princes. There he likely would have been trained in the use of weapons, chariotry, and writing. His training in writing would make him well-suited to the task of recording God's law. So God is moving in these sneaky ways throughout, like him being able to go back to his biological mother, and then him being adopted into Pharaoh's family not only keeps him alive, but he is now going to be prepared through his schooling and his upbringing to basically be the, one of the best educated people in the country, which that sentence showed you that I'm not one of the best educated people probably in this room. But he's going to get education in writing and languages and all these different things that, as we see later, will uh, come in handy as he seeks to lead the people. Spoiler alert, sorry. So, verse 11, let's keep going. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, this is like 36, 40 years later. He's probably about 40 at this point. Uh, So he went from like baby birth story to like kind of to when he was four, and then fast forward till... He was 40. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. We'll pause there again. Now remember the setup is that the Israelites, which Moses is an Israelite, they've been enslaved now for about three or four hundred years. It's not something where it's like, it's been three years, let alone 60. It's been hundred, like all you know is 
that your parents and grandparents and probably great-grandparents and beyond have been slaves in this country. And so he walks out as a grown man, as an Egyptian at this point, right? Probably looks like an Egyptian, sounds like an Egyptian, raised in Pharaoh's household. And it says he went out to his people. And he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So those two sets of words, his people, his people, tell us that even though Moses has grown up as an Egyptian, he still identifies with the Israelites. That's really important. Verse 12, he looked uh, this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So he walks out to see the slave's burdens, and he sees an Egyptian, probably like a slave driver, a taskmaster, beating an Israelite. And he like, looks both ways, makes sure the coast is clear, and he takes the guy out. He murders him and buries him. The next day, verse 13, it says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? It says, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So F- Moses is a grown man at this point. He goes out to see the slavery of who he'd identify as his people. He hasn't cut ties with them. And he seeks, he sees an injustice, he steps in, and he essentially solves the injustice by murdering this Egyptian, which then creates more injustice. He goes out the next day and sees two Hebrews fighting, and he's like, whoa, 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 like, where are our own people? What are we doing? And the guy who's in the wrong basically calls him out and says, like, you think because you're a prince that you can do whatever you want with us? Like, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And at that point, Moses knows something's not good, right? So he's in fear. And it says in 15 that Pharaoh hears of it and he seeks to kill Moses. So Moses leaves Egypt, fled from Pharaoh, and stayed in the land of Midian, which is kind of the region, country to the east. And it says, and he sat down by a well. So this royal son, right, this this slave boy is adopted into royal family, raised as royalty, educated in every way possible. Then he, uh, he steps away from that to identify with his enslaved people. He acts on their behalf, but probably not in the right way, gets in trouble, and is now a fugitive and an exile. So he went from almost dying on the river as a baby to having everything he needs, to stepping back into this um, oppressed, at least like viewing it and engaging it, uh, this this oppression, and now he's a fugitive and exile, um, and basically his life's being sought again. And we end the scene with him sitting by a well in Midian, right, like, He's probably feeling pretty defeated, probably feeling pretty exhausted, probably feeling really scared. It says in verse 16, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. So these seven daughters of this priest in another country come to get water for his flock. He probably doesn't have sons. That's why the daughters are doing it. Uh, And it says in verse 17 that these other shepherds, the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses, like fighting injustice for the third time here, says he stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. So these shepherdesses, these female shepherds, are coming to get water at the well for their father's flock. And these most likely male shepherds step in and harass them and bully them and seek to drive them away. But Moses steps in again, like you see this sense of justice again, and he essentially rescues these women from whatever danger uh, or alienation was going to come upon them. And then he helps them water their flock. In verse 18, it says, When they came home to their father, Ruel, 
he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian, which is interesting because they identify him as an Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses apparently got the invite and he comes. It says, and Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses is sitting at a well. These women come to water their, their father's flock. They, they get bullied, basically. Moses steps in again. He's successful this time. He doesn't murder anybody. Uh, and, and helps these women. They go back and tell their dad. And he, dad's like, hey, like, did I not teach you manners? You need to invite him over so we can at least reward him. Like, give him a, a you know, thanks with food. And then over time, whatever that looked like, Moses, it says, was content to dwell with them. Uh, he married one of the daughters, Zipporah. They had a son named Gershom. Uh, and Gershom, right, means, sounds like sojourner. So because Moses feels like he's been in exile or a sojourner in a foreign land, which he has two times over. He's an Israelite, raised in his Egyptian. Now he's this Israelite Egyptian in a fully different country. In scene. So Moses... Again, this baby who should have been killed is raised as royalty, steps back into at least engage with slavery, seeks to do the right thing, but ends up committing murder and flees to a nearby country. Um, and yeah, and gets married and is content and is a shepherd at this point. So if you know the rest of the story, you're probably pretty bummed right now, right? The chapter kind of comes to a a thud. It just kind of sputters out. It's like, it's Moses! No mention, no mention of him in chapter 1. He's on the scene now. God's going to use him mightily to lead his people out. And he's literally like sitting in a well, scared. And then he just gets a 9 to 5 in another country and is totally content just doing that, right? Just, I, this is what I've called to. Meanwhile, other stuff is happening, right? The last Three verses tell us a lot as we we got this lens zoomed in super tight on Moses and Midian, and then we zoom out kind of to God's level and see Israelites and things like that. It says this in verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Yes! And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. So even though Pharaoh's dead, that tells us that whoever came in after him probably kept the policy just the same because they're still groaning, still crying out for help. We don't even know if it's to God at this point. Uh, it might just be like, what is happening? We need help. It says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So Moses is like over here, hanging out, working, married, has a son. Back in Egypt, the Israelites are still enslaved. The king dies, and yet they're still groaning. They're still suffering. They're still crying out. And God, which this is the first mention of God in this whole chapter, God hears their cry because it comes up before him. And it says, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. We're going to pause there for a second. One, that word remembered in English, if you read that, you go, whoop. Does that mean he forgot? Because the God I know doesn't forget stuff. It doesn't mean he forgot. The Hebrew word just means he honors the terms of his covenant at that time. So he's, he's ready to roll. It's time to engage. 
Not that he's been waiting, but this is the time that he's going to uphold his covenant. And this covenant that you hear, we heard it over and over and over again in chapter 1. This covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob comes from various spots in Genesis where God promises to Abraham or Abram that he will, God will make Abram and his family a great nation, that they will be blessed to be a blessing, and that all the families of the earth will be blessed through them. It says in Genesis 15, uh, 13 to 14, God tells Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and servants there, which we know now is Egypt, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Here we are. And then he says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God, the Israelites know of this, at least they've been taught it, and it's in, it's like in their story, and they're going, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord? And God is going to act soon. It says, God saw the people of Israel, so he heard their cries, he heard their groaning, he heard their suffering, he saw them, and he knew. And I feel like when I read that through a few weeks ago, Moses wrote that, and he's like, that's good. Right? Because it's like the chapter closes. Now, the chapter didn't close in Hebrew, but it's like he sets, it's just a good artistic move. Like he saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew what? God knew what? We don't even really know what the what is, and yet it has this, in the midst of darkness, this like semblance of hope. God saw them and he knew. So Moses, the supposed hero, is tending flocks in Midian. Married, has a kid, will have more. The Israelites are suffering mightily. And everything is status quo in Egypt. Pharaoh died, but probably a new one rose up. And he is probably evil, just like most of them. And yet, God, this whole time, is over all of it. We don't hear of his name until the very end here, but we know that he's over all of this. He sees it, he hears it, and he knows Now, again, let's not just observe this as like we're in a classroom hearing about the Odyssey or the Iliad or something, but let's experience this, that Moses is now lonely, but he has a new family in another country, which some of you know what that's like. And the Israelites are suffering in ways we can't probably, hopefully, imagine. And yet God, the whole time, we have the privilege as the reader to know that God's looking down, he's hearing, and he knows, and yet the Israelites don't have that privilege. They're just hoping that maybe Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, hears, or that somebody will hear their cry and deliver them. That should probably resonate with you, right? Because if you know God through Christ, and you're alive then you have this tension, right, of maybe not right now, but you, you're, you suffer, you're groaning, you're longing for things, and you're like, I'm just, I don't even know if God's hearing my cry. And yet, like, if this is true here, which we believe it is, that God hears the cries of the Israelite slaves, then it's certain that he hears your cries too. Now, some of you guys identify more with Pharaoh in that you feel like you're like super in control and life is probably really good. Some of you identify with Moses in this story probably as like really content, which it's good to be content, but maybe to a fault. And then some of you, I know, identify with the Israelites here in that life is, you're just trying to breathe right now. And so that is really, really important. But God knows, right? He hears 
their cries, he sees their suffering, and he knows. Now, like I said, there's all these little threads throughout this story of Exodus where these little redemption ties of not our church, right, but like the word redemption, where God is redeeming things, like, even, like Moses being like him living, let alone being raised by his own mom for a few years, and then being raised in this royal household to set him up for future leadership, things like that. And we see that the Exodus story really, really, really closely reflects the gospel story, right? The Exodus is the gospel to Old Testament Jews. They, they, all through the Old Testament, and even throughout the New, we look back and see God delivered them then, he'll certainly do it again. God delivered them then, but he'll certainly do it again. Life is terrible, but let's look back at the Exodus and see God deliver us out of slavery and bring us into a fruitful land where we're not only are we not slaves, but we get to thrive. God hears them, he sees them, and he knows. No other person in the Bible, there's no other person in the Bible that shows God's knowing more than the person of Jesus. Now, fully God, fully man, we know that Jesus left his royal home to enter into flesh and blood to take on suffering. We walked through a series at the beginning of the year called Love Walked Among Us where we really focused in on various instances in Jesus' life where he stopped what he was doing and engaged with people who were hurting, right? Whether it was raising the son of the widow at Nain or giving sight to the man born blind or healing the man with leprosy by touching him. Like, that guy hadn't been touched in years, let alone engaged in. And Jesus touches him, restores his, his health, and restores his place in society as a result. So Jesus not only enters into suffering on a massive cosmic level by his life, death, and resurrection, but he enters through his life in these little moments where he's rescuing people from their slavery. It says in Hebrews 2, it says, For it was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. It continues on and says, Therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So Jesus became man. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you hear that? The Israelites are in lifelong slavery, generational slavery, crying out for rescue and God hears. We, whether we know it or not, are in lifelong slavery to sin and death because of the devil. And God sees that and he enters into it through his son and rescues it. Rescues us from it. It says, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It says in Hebrews 4 that we don't have a high priest, Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so God, even now, is not a God of the old. Of Well, he acted in Exodus, but he's surely not acting now. God, even now, hears your cries, your groaning, and he knows. Which hopefully, some of you guys are like, this is great. This means nothing to me. Others of you, hopefully this is really resonating. That God would hear me in my difficulty, in my slavery, in my suffering, and he would actually know and he would act. Beyond just us suffering and groaning, all creation 
Literally, all of the earth is groaning. It says in Romans 8, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected or enslaved to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage or slavery to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You should even hear the similarities there, right? That we groan. Like if you're a believer and you're not groaning, just turn on the news. Like my wife and I had the privilege of going to Europe a few years ago, and we were in Westminster Abbey in uh, London, which is cool, but also really weird because there's like hundreds of these tombs for people. And one of them was this big rock granite thing, right, with like the guy's statue laying on top of it. Uh, And it said on, he died in like the 1600s, and it said, come, Lord Jesus, come. And it kind of hit us of like, man, that was like 400, 500 years ago, and he was longing just to be with God. So if you're a believer, you know this feeling of like, I just want, I want the promise of all things to be new to actually happen soon. And then some of you are just, not to diminish it, not just, but some of you are in a situation where you have longings that are holy and good and they haven't been fulfilled. Whether that's a spouse or a job or reconciliation with family or like hoping for an adoption or that a family member wouldn't be gone um, we're all working with some sort of suffering. And at a base level, we're all enslaved to the sin and death that is throughout the world. And yet God sees us, he hears our groans, he hears our cries, and all creation's groans and cries, and he, he knows, and he'll act. My hope is that that's an encouragement to you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your grace, thanks for your word, thanks for your goodness, thanks for, yeah, just that we can know you through your word, that you're a God who isn't far off, you're not some deistic God who like made creation and then set it in motion and now you're twiddling your thumbs, but you are intimately involved in every moment, um, especially in the moments that we feel like you're furthest away. Many of us in this room, like the Israelites in this situation, and even like Moses, are um, we not meaning to. We have blinders on because we can only see what we can see. And yet you are at work doing uh, a thousand things right now in and through us and around us that we have no idea you're doing. All for um, your glory, to show yourself off. And so as we sit in the midst of this tension of even in Exodus, of not being at chapter 3 with Moses' call and so forth and so on, where you come and rescue the people and show your power. As we sit in that in our lives, where we just long for your hand to intervene, where we long for your power to be shown, where we long to know you and feel you, 
God, help us to remember that you are near, that you hear us, and that you know. We love you, God. Make us know you more. Let us take heart that you do know us, that you care for us, and that you love us. In Jesus' name.